Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is uh, Azamat Dunisbay, Azamat Dunisbay f- who is uh, a uh, professor of sociology at Pitzer College in California. And uh, he was born and raised in Kazakhstan and has provided some very interesting, uh, given me some very interesting lessons about especially Russian imperialism and understanding what's going on right now and uh, why it is that Russian propaganda and the things that Putin are saying, which sounds crazy to a lot of people in Europe, <laughs> are uh, they have a, uh, a logical uh, component and, and a logical uh, connection, you could say resonance. Uh, I'd like to first start with just a quote from uh, one of his uh, Twitter t- uh, threads. It says that, amidst all the turmoil of Russian history, one part of Russian worldview uh, persisted. The remarkably stable and enduring phenomenon transcending different historical periods and the regime types is the self-conception of Russia as a great power that brings good to those around it and Russian people as bearers of superior culture and morality. Deeply internalized, the idea of its own benevolence has long permeated and shaped Russian society. And in this narrative, unlike the old European powers guilty of ruthless colonial conquest, Russia is a selfless bringer of culture prosperity and order so thank you for uh, thank you for joining me here and uh, for your uh, insights so far uh, I heard you thank were, you so much uh, for having me at a conference in uh, in Washington DC you must be quite busy these days <laughs> yeah it's been it's been a busy few months I suppose it's not always that uh, things that you've been studying and experiencing uh, for most of your life suddenly becomes uh, so uh, topical on the world agenda it's, as it is currently. It is very true. Yeah, it seems right now there is a lot of attention to the region that perhaps normally does not get quite so much of it. So uh, to start with, uh, perhaps you could tell a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, how you developed your knowledge uh, and the, the your background that uh, makes you such an expert on this field. Course. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so as you said, I was born and raised in what was then the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. But I was born in the capital, the, the city is Almaty. The capital since moved to Astana, but uh, yeah, back when I was growing up, it was the capital city. And I was about 16 when the Soviet Union fell apart. Right, so what I. What was that experience like? Just uh, what was your impression of? things like it must seem like the it's world, just world is it was of. you know it was uh interesting i think in some ways it has shaped me the fact that you know in my formative years i witnessed this regime that seems so complete and huge and all-powerful and it was in every part of life it just vanished it crumbled Right, and it just disappeared. So I was, when I was in, in elementary school, every child in the Soviet Union was Aktibrionik, right? So the, you would wear the little red star with the baby linen right. face on it, right? So I, I was that. And then I think in fourth grade, um, you are accepted into the Young Pioneer pioneer Organization with, you know, the red scarf and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was accepted into that organization as a fourth grader i remember it was in this beautiful park across the street from our school next to the monument of lenin um and then you know in high school you're supposed to become member of the youth communist league come some all but by that point everything fell apart right so i actually so i got to be active and then pioneer but never the member of the Komsomol, right, of the Youth Communist League, because the system crumbled. And it was a, um, I always try to find words to describe the magnitude of change and just how dramatic the change was for my students here in the United States. And it's difficult, right? So it's just um, so many things, right? So economic things like for example you know the soviet union of course had the command economy right where prices were fixed you knew that this particular bottle of milk cost this much always that never more never less i to this day still have uh you know some forks and uh, knives 
from uh, when I was growing up and it had prices literally stamped into the metal, right? <laughs> because planners in Moscow decided this particular fork is going to cost 37 kopecks hmm. and that's what it was going to be. And so they could just stamp it into the metal. So there is no confusion. Right. And so I actually, uh, I, you know, a few years ago, I gave a couple of these forks to uh, my colleagues who are professors of economics here in California, and they were just blown away by this, right? Just the, idea that how can have different. a stable value over so long time. So. Yeah, yeah, no, the idea that you have, you your government has the authority to literally stamp the price of a pot or a pan or a fork into the metal and that what it will be forever, that's what it's going to be, right? So you go from that level of economic stability, I suppose, right? And it's how everything is so controlled to uh, hyperinflation, hmm. right? So in the early 90s, in, in Kazakhstan, the inflation, you know, reached over a thousand percent. And so people literally, like in my family, and I think we were not the only ones, people just did not know what to make of it, right? So you, the money you made or the money maybe that your parents saved up, you know, hidden somewhere in some corner of the apartment, all of anymore. a sudden is, is paper, mm -hmm. right? And they just, I mean, some families obviously were a little bit more savvy and uh, you know could figure out what to do with this but my family was not and i just remember how shocked they were that you know their parents lifetime savings became wow. basically paper and and so it was just this a disturbing disturbing time and uh, economically politically people lost jobs uh even the language changed right so we had some basic words like, you know, entrepreneur was a kind of a bad word, had a negative connotation, right? right? A businessman had a negative connotation. And all of a sudden, these became the new heroes, right, of the, the brave new world. Mm. Um, but also, um, uh, you know, the as a kid growing up in Kazakhstan, right, the Central Asia, right, and definitely sort of the outskirts of the Soviet Union, um you didn't really think of oh we are controlled by moscow or this is a colonial relationship right so it was just yeah moscow was this great big capital and we were so lucky to be there and you know it was such a great country and the the thing of course is also and you never heard if anyone said anything different <laughs> yeah yeah you never hear anything different and he also the lang language itself right so i am ethnic kazakh um but in my family russian replaced kazakh as the main language mm. actually starting with my parents generation right so my mother and her siblings were all born in the 1940s but they did not retain kazakh Right. So mm -hmm. their parents spoke Kazakh, but they did not retain Kazakh. And I remember my mom sharing a story that her mom told her. Her mom told her, if you want to have a successful life, you have to uh, do Russian. You have to speak Russian. Mm -hmm. That's the only way for you to survive, to do well. Right. And so my family took that lesson. And so by the time, you know, I was born in the 70s, Kazakh was just almost non-existent, right? So, and it's strange to think about it now, but so I was in Almaty, the capital, even back then it had, you know, about a million people, residents, hundreds of schools, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, for all the kids. And out of these schools, only two, literally two schools in 1983, when I started first grade, were had Kazakh as the language of instruction, right? So all the other schools were in Russian. And it's, it's just, Strange to think that in the capital of Kazakhstan, that was the case, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's it you know the what the current events, the war in Ukraine, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, has caused me to do a lot of reevaluating, rethinking of my own childhood, of my own ideas about language and being Kazakh, and in my case, being a Russian speaker. So I grew up speaking Russian, mm. and it never. The fact that I spoke Russian and the fact that my Kazakh wasn't very good, to put it mildly, uh, it never bothered me, right? Honestly, 
I internalized the idea that Kazakh language was the language of the village, was a language of sort of backward rural peasant people. Mm. Yeah, peasant village, really a class marker, right? A marker of lower status. And I actually, I am ashamed to think about it now, but I think I felt disdain or, you know, certain arrogance towards any Kazakhs who spoke Russian with even the slightest hint of a Kazakh accent, right? Who had anything but perfect Russian wow. because immediately that marked them as, oh, village people, you know, and lower. Yeah. it's painful to think about it now because really, unlike me, those people retained connection to their own culture and language. And I was so colonized, so broken in my right. own mind, I guess, that I actually looked down on them for having that connection still. I mean, in some ways, it gives me the chills, right? Because, I mean, we know about the Ashar Siluk, right? I mean, a lot of people don't mm -hmm. really know about these things. I I learned about it. Um, I, I knew there had been quite some destruction, as there always is when the Russians, uh, when the Soviets came into certain areas. But I had no idea that we're talking about millions here that were uh, oh, absolutely. This, this this genocide by hunger. Uh, where Absolutely. horses and cows were rounded up um, and the Kazakhs were left with nothing and it was all sent over to Moscow. And yeah, yeah. the Kazakhs who wanted to escape just to other areas of the Soviet Union were, you know, they, they were pursued by soldiers, they were gunned down. Um, it's absolutely horrible to think of. But you understand in some ways based on your experience, you understand what they're trying to do in Ukraine. <laughs> Because some of these propagandists, they're talking about, yeah, this generation will hate us, we'll kill them, their children will grow up learning Russian, and they'll like us. I mean, it's it's chilling to think about the... that there didn't... that you didn't, and most Kazakhs didn't, retain a kind of resentment towards the people that had killed millions of Kazakhs Uh, made you an own, a minority in your own countries uh, just so they could feed themselves or also be, uh, intentionally they say that the um, I believe it was he said that the Kyrgyz I mean they called the Kyrgyz rather than Kazakhs uh, is not strong in communism and therefore it needs to be eradicated I mean it's um, and a lot of people from the West <coughs> are asking we're asking people from Ukraine and, Af and and Kazakhstan. Why haven't you talked about this before so much? Why hasn't this been published? Uh, why hasn't this become as the Armenians who go everywhere in the world to, to get their genocide um, mm -hmm. at the hand of the Turks uh, acknowledged? You don't have that same push, but the reason is because the the abuser is still in the house <laughs> you know you can't you can't hear from the victims while the abuser is still in the house the one who's it's, been, it's, been killing yeah. and molesting people yeah it's it's very true i think that um a huge part of why kazakhstan for example kazakh government has not uh made you know ashar shalok a more prominent um you know, part of the conversation, right, of about Kazakhstan's history is because it is something that absolutely infuriates Moscow and, frankly, is dangerous for Kazakhstan to engage in, right? So Ukraine uh, obviously has pushed hard, right, against Moscow and, you know, Holodomor in Ukraine is something that, you know, is recognized at the highest levels and is uh, something that is part of the national conversation. In Kazakhstan, it is recognized. It is part of the conversation. There is a monument a few years ago that went up, but definitely it's a much lower level of publicity and sort of noise made about it, precisely because it is something that infuriates Moscow. And as you said, you know, it's it's still quite the danger is very real, right? So uh, that's one reason. Another, honestly, is if you think about you know, who talks and where do these conversations happen, right? So if you if you look at the Kazakh language press, right, if you look at the Kazakh intellectuals who speak to other Kazakhs, 
among them, the conversation about the hunger, the famine, right, has been going on for years. It never stopped, right? But if you think about who reaches the international audiences, right? So, right, who who are the where are the sources of knowledge or the epistemology, right, of knowledge that is generated, produced about the region? I mean, most of the time it was people who study Russia or just Russians, right, speaking on behalf of everyone, like they always have. And I think it's only recently that there are people in Central Asia who are beginning to get a little bit more uh, of an audience in the West, in the international community, and their voices are getting heard. So I think it's just an issue of representation as well, right? And we're trying to change this, obviously. And as you you can imagine, any mention of this in the UN or in other uh, international assemblies, Russia would probably react very strongly towards this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, something that is guaranteed to provoke a furious reaction from them. You know, a few years ago, I want to say 2017, perhaps 2018, you know, when Kazakhstan began to talk sort of more consistently about switching the written Kazakh language from Cyrillic to Latin alphabet, right. even something so small like that, right? We're talking about Kazakh written Kazakh language, not Russia, not the status of Russia, nothing about Russian speakers in Kazakhstan, but switching written Kazakh to Latin alphabet. In Moscow, the reaction was absolutely hysterical. They uh, said, oh, they are Kazakh- Kazakhs are stabbing us in the back, mm-hmm. right? And and, 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 and all this, uh, you know, tr- uh, it, this is a betrayal and everything. And so, yeah, the, it's, it's interesting. I think the events in uh, Ukraine have made it very difficult to sort of not see that really Russia still sees itself as the colonial master that has the right to call the shots, that has the right to control countries that it once formally sort of, uh, you know, controlled. And and that is unprepared to see uh, these independent nations that have been independent for over 30 years now as really sovereign nations that have the ability to, you know, set their own course, right? And it's just like that sort of denial or refusal to face the reality that the empire is no more, mm. right? That it's, 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 and they are, you know, violent about it, right? So if you think about it, what they're trying to do in Ukraine, they're trying to turn time back. I mean, right? there was uh, a Norwegian author that went to an, uh, interview uh, Shushkevich, uh, you know, one of the mm-hmm. ones who masterminded the end of the uh, of the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, and she asked, "When did you know that the Soviet Union was over?" Mm-hmm. And uh, he responded, "Well, it's not over because it's not over in the minds of a lot of people, and mm-hmm. the the propaganda mm-hmm. structures are all aimed at at bringing it back." Absolutely, yeah. I think it's. It's definitely in the minds of a lot of Russian folks. The collapse of the Soviet Union is seen as a terrible tragedy. I mean, the hatred for Gorbachev in Russia is real. You talk to a regular person, they'll say, oh, this is a guy who just squandered this amazing, powerful country that everyone was afraid of. And he is, is, you know, he is the worst because he destroyed, you know, the Soviet Union, which, of course, is if you are you know, Estonian or Georgian or Ukrainian or Kazakh, it's terrifying because that's our independence, right? Right. That's not a catastrophe. That's, that's a good thing. You know, it's our independence, but that mindset is very common. Um, One thing about the Soviet Union not being over as it's still in people's minds, I think, yeah, Putin is capitalizing on it and he's trying to fuel it, right? He's trying to give it more energy, but I've been thinking that, you know, Russia's attack against Ukraine has actually accelerated the process of uh, removing Soviet Union from people's minds elsewhere. Right. Right. So in Central Asia. Right. So decolonization, if you want to call it that. Right. The 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 I, you know, all the warm and fuzzy feelings that maybe older generation had about the Soviet Union that is uh, rapidly 
disappearing because of everyone can see the horribleness that Russia is perpetrating see in the ugly face of it. Uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, you know, one 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 sort of image that comes to mind. You know, if you think about a hot air balloon right. that's floating in the air, right, and uh, what it's what is supporting it in the air, you know, is this goodwill toward Moscow. Oh, you know, things used to be so nice, free education, free healthcare, and, you know, we were a big country. So the goodwill, residual goodwill mm -hmm. toward the Soviet Union, I think is what's keeping this balloon in the air. But I think the war just <laughs> shot through the balloon, right? So I think the air is coming out, that goodwill is disappearing quickly. And I think, uh, I don't think it can be patched. I don't think it can be repaired. Uh, at this point. So what's different now between when they took part of Moldova for Transnistria, uh, took part of Georgia in 2008, uh, and took part of Ukraine in 2014? Is it just because it was like a full-scale invasion of, uh, of a country rather than just trying to chip off a part of it? Or, has, or have people just changed by the now? Like, have people become more aware of the Russian threat? Honestly, um, I think a good argument can be made that a lot of things that um, happened that you just listed, you know, were just as outrageous. And um, I mean, for what it's worth, personally, I felt, you know, sort of this outrage you know, for a long time, long before, you know, the February 24th of 2022. But I think the wider awakening that is happening now to Russia as a, as this kind of revanchist colonial power that is trying to stop time, it's it's due to the scale, like you said. I think this the scale of the invasion, right? The fact that it's just an all-out war with right. hundreds of thousands of soldiers, tanks, and you know bombing of civilian infrastructure and all this stuff. I think the just some it's something so huge that you cannot really look away. Do you think also the effective resistance from the Ukrainians have bolstered or kind of given more uh, given more people like feel like they they can dare to speak out that it's uh, given them courage? To say like look there's actually a good chance that russia loses this and that we can actually cast off the yoke of the fear of moscow i think you're absolutely right i think that um the incredible sort of brave fight that ukraine uh is um engaging in against russia against a much bigger opponent it has inspired people everywhere I think it has inspired people. It has uh, certainly burst the bubble of uh, invincibility that Russia had. Right, the idea that they are all powerful and that they, they're the you know the, the second best army in the world and all that. Uh, I think that bubble is burst. And again, that's not uh, going to somehow reformulate itself. Right, that's just it's gone. Right, uh, and certainly, I think the fact that Ukrainians are fighting uh, and paying a terrible price, but fighting so well against the Russian invasion, against uh, the much bigger opponent, yeah, has given inspiration and hope to uh, people in Russia's former colonies, for sure. I mean, the it seems like also they're... The propagandists are 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 livid. They are, so many of them are just saying this will be the end of Russia if we lose this. It'll be there will be no more Russia and so on. And it seems their conception of Russia is as someone who can dominate their neighbors. I mean, because mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the case. I mean, it may be the case, but Tuva and others will break out, but probably not, right? I mean, like that's that's by itself. Uh, just because of they lose in Ukraine doesn't mean that all the um, the Russian republics will suddenly go away, but it means they will stop controlling their neighbors, right? It's uh, and and they're they're scared to death of it. They say like, Armenia doesn't like us, Kazakhstan doesn't like us, all these other people suddenly don't like us. They've been seduced by the West, right? <laughs> Anthony Blinken's mm -hmm. visit to uh, Kazakhstan, where they gave you know forty five million in, or promised forty five million in kind of cultural support, I believe it was. I mean, yeah, yeah, the the. 
Russians was like, and they took it. I can't believe they actually took the yeah. Americans' money. You know, it's not really that much—45 yeah, yeah, yeah. million for a whole yeah. nation. But yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I think that there is a um, re- there is a refusal to uh, recognize that the countries that Russia once controlled now can control their own destiny. Like it is something that most Russians seem to be unwilling to accept. Right, you know, there is a uh, there is a term in Russian, near abroad, right? As opposed to the you know the regular abroad, right? So regular zarubiezhi. Hmm. Whereas you know, so a, a place like Norway would be considered, you know, you know, like a far, like a abroad abroad, right? Not, but like even, Kazakhstan, even though, even, though it, even though it has a border with Russia. Yeah, yeah. So all the places that Russia controlled as part of the Soviet Union. That's the near are considered, abroad. you know, the near abroad. And I think that there is a widespread sentiment in Russian society that um, Russia has this God-given natural right to to decide things in these countries that not, nothing in these countries can be done without Russia's approval and whatnot. And so I think the reason, honestly, for why they would worry about NATO. I don't think any uh, sane Russian believes that NATO is going to march on Moscow or anything like that. But I think the reason is uh, that being part of NATO means you cannot, Russia cannot just bully these countries in the way that it expects to be able to do. And it's something that drives people crazy, right? I also, um wanted to emphasize something that I think is an important distinction. Uh, I hear from a lot of uh, sort of prominent Russian opposition members, right, who talk about the war in Ukraine is Putin's war. Right. Putin is to blame. The second Putin is gone, the war is done. Mm-hmm. Russians are not imperialist in any way. Uh, it's all Putin's fault. Uh, Russia, Putin's rule is a mafia rule and Russians are victims. Right, it's this take that perhaps if you're uh, an aspiring politician in Russia and you hope to have popular support in the future, maybe that's maybe they feel like that's the only thing they can say. But also, if you look at the situation as a Central Asian, as someone from a former Russian colony, it makes almost no sense. Mm. Right? How is this Putin's war? Where clearly. Putin enjoys enormous approval rating jumps when he invades, right? When Russian army invades. Uh, How is it Putin's war when you look at survey results and you see that, you know, a clear majority of the Russian people supports the war in Ukraine, right? But uh, I think as public intellectuals, as people who are trying to Kind of make sense of this and trying to talk to others about this we got to always you know really challenge this notion that somehow uh russian society has no collective responsibility for what is going on that it's only putin's fault because i think it really lets off the hook uh far too many people mm. And I guess that we, can, that we can talk about the kind of social programming that goes into the idea of the empire, right? And that mm-hmm. um, I remember after the um, after the the fall of the Kharkiv prog- pro- province or the restoration of the Kharkiv prog- province to to Ukraine, and mm-hmm. just the absolute uh, shambles of the of the Russian lines there, where. Uh, city after city fell every day and I was just following it every day for new news of new Ukrainian mm-hmm. flags raised on over cities. And a prominent Russian newspaper had this editorial about the infallibility of Russian leadership. Mm-hmm. And it said, all our culture has trained us to gather all our energies and focus to bring forth one mm-hmm. Vosht, right? A kind of a, a leader. And to give that person ultimate power uh, mm-hmm. and lead us to victory or to lead us to success in different ways. Um, and 
but we don't have a control mechanism for when this leader doesn't. And obviously, the impli- implicit is there. <laughs> what do we do if Putin just really mm-hmm. is a terrible leader um, and can't bring us victory or, or greatness? And I mean, it's 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 as if taken straight from the pages of of Mein Kampf, where you know, Hitler talks about the idea of German democracy, and he is mm-hmm. that is that German democracy is that the people give uh, one leader ultimate power, and that that leader accepts full responsibility for the success or failure of the people. That's German democracy, is what Hitler called it. I mean, that's. <laughs> that's what we're talking about here, right? The Vojt and the followers. Um, yep. What, what is this idea of the empire and the roles that peop- that Russians culturally are, according to this article, are kind of already pre-programmed or aligned to take when it comes to this? I mean, like the leadership culture, the um, the, the the view of of violence, ways of leading, etc., um, could you give us some insights yeah. into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, if you think about history, right, Russia has been an empire for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it literally was the name of the country, Russian Imperial, Russian Empire, right? Uh, and, and, and that and, is different you know, from just being a big country. That means that empire implies that we've conquered these other peoples, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and Russian head of say, you know, was the, the royal family, right? The, it was called the emperor, right? So it was an empire. And then, um, the tsar, you know, the, and the Caesar, right? That the tsar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's not, not controversial, I think. Right. Um, so, and then the Soviet Union, right? Uh, the revolution in the Soviet Union period, uh, v- very quickly reasserted control over all the territories that were once controlled by the Russian Empire, right? Even, Using military even means it by by taking Eastern Europe, right? Yeah, and 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 um, it has basically continued to control uh, these places. So the um, the nature of the relationship, right, where Moscow and Saint Petersburg were sort of at the center, right, and all these places were, you know, under their rule, that really has been remarkably stable for such a long time. Um, no one who is alive today has experienced anything different in Russia, right? And so the idea, really in 91, if you think about it, in 91 when the Soviet Union fell apart, why it was seen as such a terrible tragedy, or to use Putin's words, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, mm-hmm. right, is because for the first time parts of this empire broke away right so soviet union consisted of 15 republics and all of a sudden 14 were gone right and russia is still an enormous country obviously still we still i was going to say it's still uh, the largest country, largest country in the world and yeah yeah, yeah i mean it still has massively you know, underdeveloped uh, and uh, a lot of cities don't even have roads, proper roads, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, the people roads. don't have, like a large percentage of people in Russia don't have plumbing inside their houses or whatnot, right? So it's it's a huge, it's still a huge country. Um, it actually still uh, has uh, enormous territories that were occupied, right, mm-hmm. through uh, violent wars. Um, you know, think Yakutia, Buryatia, you know, uh, Caucasus, uh, but again, at, at this point, it you know, uh, when 1991 happened, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was experienced as a terrible loss because the people, I think, internalized this idea of, you know, Soviet Union as this great country. And in part, the greatness is because it controlled all these very diverse, very different uh, places. So, and all of a sudden, these countries are independent, and I think it was not well taken by the Russian public. But but uh, you kind of wonder, like, why does a small you know uh, business owner or worker care about how big Russia is, right? I mean, like, what what does it bring them? It doesn't make them get a higher pension. Doesn't mean get them more goods or wealth. What what is it about? It's, I think it's something, you know, if you think about socialization, mm-hmm. people growing up, what do people learn in school from when they start in first grade and, you know, all the way through school, what do people learn from television, from radio, from news? 
it's always about the greatness. It's always about the greatness of the Russian people, the greatness of the Russian culture, the greatness of the Russian, you know, mm -hmm. literature, music, uh, everything, right? The territorial greatness, how it has the most resources and everyone is jealous of our resources and everyone wants, you know, uh, our oil and gas and diamonds Russia. and gold. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is drilled into people, right? I absolutely of course do not think that there is something different you know genetically about russian people or not i mean no, no they're just they're people like everyone else like all of us but i think if you drill an idea into someone for years and years and years generations and generations it becomes part of who they are right it's something that uh obviously needs to change a reckoning with history a re-examination of history of russia's place of russia's colonial legacy needs to happen but uh much like in uh germany it took the defeat in world war ii mm. right for this re-examination to happen i think something similar only can trigger a similar re-examination in russia mm -hmm. right I without think. that i don't think anything will happen honestly i think in some way in some big way part of why this horrible events are happening now is because this reckoning never happened after the soviet union collapsed it was just seen as an unfortunate uh series of events that you know gorbachev is to blame for but a real reckoning didn't happen and in a way i think germany's example is inspiring as a country that has struggled with this and it took you know maybe 20 years but it really has done a lot of rethinking and reassessing its own history and legacy and trying to take lessons from that something similar needs to happen in russia it has not happened yet i think it will require military defeat in ukraine for it to have a chance of happening i was going to say like the because russia came out of the war would be like we're the big heroes right uh even though Stalin killed more people than Hitler did. I mean, just a, uh, except for like in indirect executions rather than in combat. Obviously, Hitler caused the World mm -hmm. War II, or, mm -hmm. or they caused the World War II together because they were splitting Europe between themselves. That was the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. But that, and then Khrushchev comes and does this kind of de-Stalinization, but the gulags stay open, <laughs> and mm -hmm. the it's like it's like they never come to part with the, the, the point that, oh, are we the bad guys? You know, <laughs> are we the bad guys? Uh, that that it's actually bad to, and not okay, to deport, mass deport uh, populations to to uh, cause all these uh, and intentional hungers, uh, genocides by hunger, um, to mass execute uh, thousands and millions of people in order to mm -hmm. just try to drive through this kind of policy or subjugation and that, yeah. that these things are, are absolutely terrible and Russians would never accept it if it happened to them but it's somehow they, they, they don't have the same kind of do they just lack the empathy like being able to see the Kazakhs and other people as, as themselves and say like look I think there is an amount of there is a, there is a level of um dehumanization in case of central asia it's also just straight up racism right so mm -hmm. this idea that we are superior we're the white whites. We, we, the whites there. we are the you know we are the white people who brought culture and modernity and civilization and science mm -hmm. to these savages right so there is clearly as, uh, as you said essentially we, we taught you to stand to piss standing up kind of thing right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've heard that, like, I recently was reading somewhere, you know, like a, a, a Russian person was commenting, saying, oh, you Kazakhs better be careful, you know, what you wish for. If all Russians leave Kazakhstan, you know, in a few years from now, you will just be riding the horses across the barren steppe. There will be nothing left, right? Mm -hmm. And that you owe us everything you have, right? So this idea, in case of Central Asia, there's a heavy dose of racism involved as well, and 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 certainly that the the lives and w what happens to the non-Russian people, it, they matter less, hmm. right, uh, than than the, the the otherwise. But again, I um, 
I think that society, and maybe that's a sociologist in me, but I think that the socialization society has, it exerts a great uh, sort of influence, right, right on people. What people think, what they consider normal, what they consider valuable, it matters a lot. And it's just that in Russian society, this idea of Russian people as the civilizing sort of people, the ones who are the most important, the most enlightened, has been around for a long time. And um, also the idea that the others should be grateful for mm-hmm. Russian control, or Russian authority. I mean, and that, but that doesn't extend to all of Russians either. I mean, like, right, because it's... I mean, some of the people that are treated worst in this war are Russian conscripts. Even, you know, Russians, you know, white Russians. Uh, the fact that you have like blocking troops that shoot anyone that 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 runs from mm-hmm. the battle, um, the fact that and that's not just prisoners, the fact that you, the 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 uh, leaders in the army they 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 shoot at they they beat their subordinates. I, I mean it's it's a level of acceptance of violence and leading by violence that that soldiers in any Western army would just not accept would not stand for. True, true. That's that's a very good point. Um, yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that the value of human life has not been great for a very long time in Russia. I mean, um, the value of, uh, you know, an individual, mm-hmm. right? individual rights, individual uh, sort of autonomy, has just not been very central, right? And so, yeah, if you think about the the military sort of strategy that is being used right now, right, around Bakhmut in Ukraine, they're just, they're talking about the meat grinder. They're sending waves after waves of sort of uh, Russian soldiers, you know, either the, you know, the, the convicts or the regular army to to almost certain death, right? And it's a strategy that would not be possible, I think, with any Western military just because, the, you know, it just soldiers wouldn't go for it. No, not, not until, not since World War One, at least, right? Like World War One, yeah. also other you know, meat grinder, yeah, that was a meat grinder war, but after that, it was like people, no, we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna stand for like these useless meat grinder battles anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, there is definitely something very archaic about uh, it's almost this. like the, that's the price that they're willing to pay in order to be a great nation, kind of thing. Like, yeah, that's the price to pay. We uh, was that one of the propagandists said, uh, you know, it's been nice to have peace these thirty years, but you have to think that there's been something kind of artificial about this. I mean, we're an empire; we need to be at war. That's our natural state. We need to yeah, guard, no, against, that's, guard against the barbarians on our frontiers. That's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it makes me think of a conversation I had with someone a few years ago in the U.S. Uh, you know, it's, it's an ethnic Russian person. Uh, it's a nice, uh, kind, very gentle person, writes poetry. And this was around the time when uh, Russia illegally annexed Crimea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just venting about this and saying, hey, this is how awful is this and why is the international community not doing more? And he shocked me by basically saying that he 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 supported Russia's actions. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, how could a decent person support this? And, and then I said, OK, well, let's try to find some common ground. Perhaps we both can agree that, you know, the borders as they existed in 1991 should not be violated. And then we can talk about other things. But if we agree on that, then we can. that could be the starting point for our conversation. And he said, no, I cannot agree with that. And I was like, why not? And he said, well, if you look historically, the borders between nations have been drawn with blood and have reflected the balance of power. And he said, that's how it's always been done. And the borders that emerged when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991 have not been drawn with blood and do not reflect the balance of power between the countries. And so this is the process that is happening now. And this is coming from the gentlest, nicest guy who writes poems, right? And so it's just, yeah, it blew me away. I mean, it's saying that, again, I can't believe it, but people are saying like, the Russians are saying, 
Russians, Russia stops where it is stopped, right? Russia has no borders. Uh, it only has front lines that can move. I mean, that's that's such a pre-World War II. I mean, like, like it's the entire post-World War II order has been based on exactly, uh, you know, on the, the stability. It's like they see that as something artificial, as something fake that that's not even desirable. Yeah. yeah, no, it seems like the the Soviet uh, period uh, has maybe just made some people confused about the fact that, yeah, the, the, the way Russia positions itself, the, the way it sees the world is very sort of 19th century, very kind of archaic. I mean, it's before uh, that because, because land doesn't matter that much anymore. Like there is a reason why That's, Russia has so many resources, but it's still a poorer country than Italy. You know, like, and uh, you know, Italy has nowhere near the land mass that Russia has, but they have a better economy. They have more in innovation. They have more uh, better education. You know, all the things that better develop develop cities. All those things. To think that. Land mass, I mean, include equals greatness. That's that's such a feudalistic mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it seems like definitely it's a society that is very much stuck in time, right? Somehow it's stuck in the past, and mm, it's. I mean, to be fair, it's the sentiment that is actively promoted by the Kremlin, hmm. right? They're actively pushing that because. Um, You know, if I'm a if I'm a Russian leader and I cannot really provide good healthcare, good roads, good jobs, uh, housing, education to my citizens because my regime is so corrupt and you know all my lovers need yachts and you know and super jets and everything like that, then how do I maintain my popularity? How do I maintain my approval ratings? Well, this talk about we are the greatest, we are the, you know, the bearers of traditional values. We are the, you know, the, the envy of the world. Everyone wants our resources. We, you know, we have this glorious history. It becomes the replacement, right? Mm. Because you could, I could be trying to get, grow my popularity by providing goods and services to my people, but that requires no corruption or less corruption. And I cannot do that. So instead, I'll feed them these narratives. I mean, in uh, the former Soviet Union, in, in, in Russia, people talk about, you know, the, it's a contest between the television and the refrigerator, right? So, uh, and, and it's like the refrigerator is empty, but the TV is uh, winning for now, I guess, at least in the minds of the Russian people, right? And so the question is how long and you know how bad should the empty refrigerator situation continue mm -hmm. for it to matter more than the tv but you know the, the yeah in the context between the, the tv and the refrigerator tv seems to be winning in russian society for now mm. i mean in some ways it feels like i didn't realize before obviously as one who was our country was occupied by germany under world war 2 during World War II. Mm -hmm. But then we have had freedom since 1945 mm -hmm. and, and a stable democracy. And I didn't realize at that time, as growing up, that, wow, there was... Uh, we left half of Europe behind at that time, right? Like Because for my father-in-law from Romania, mm -hmm. yes, the Nazis went, but they were replaced by the KGB and the secret police mm -hmm. and the internment camps, you know, and his, 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 uh, his grandfather was, was put in one of those labor camps and, um, mm -hmm. for no other reason than he was educated and, uh, and had, uh, had made some money. Right. And, uh, mm -hmm. experienced again, the a, a totalitarian system and, then the wall fell, but it only fell as far as Poland roughly, right. <laughs> and the Baltics, Uh, you know, the Belarus, um, Ukraine, um, Poland, not Poland, uh, you know, Georgia, uh, mm -hmm. Armenia, the Kazakhstan, they were still within the, the grasp of the Kremlin. Uh, they could not 
act independently. They were being controlled. They were puppet regimes um, to a certain extent or, or tolerated, but they were always living on borrowed time. And any moment, the Russian tanks could could roll in over the border and, and uh, put in a new puppet dictator. And, and so a lot of them, and I know a lot of people in Georgia especially, uh, they lived very, very clearly with this. That's, it's like a constant headache, the fear of Moscow, mm-hmm. the fear of Russia. Um, and it's always there and you can never breathe free. <laughs> and, and just thinking about the potential, obviously this is a very d- dangerous time, but the potential, if Russia were to um, experience a, a severe defeat of their army, and, and they're already, I think, mm-hmm. diminished as a superpower, they're, they've, mm-hmm. they're back to the tanks from 1950s now. <laughs> That's what they're digging up. Um, you know, e- even in that case, it would take years for them to reassert, th- reassert themselves. But just that how many nations and people could suddenly breathe free and talk the truth about all the things that they've suffered under under communist oh, absolutely. Russian absolutely. I think that the, the fact that Ukraine is uh, fighting Russia uh, so successfully uh, and is really uh, weakening Russia militarily, it is creating breathing room for all the other places that were once colonized by Russia and still have a lot to fear from Russia. Right, so I think it has it has emboldened uh, people in other places um, to uh, you know to 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 see the future a little bit more on their own. I, in Kazakhstan, I've heard people say to me, um, "Ukrainians are fighting for all of us, hmm. right? That, that they're of course they're fighting for their own homes, for their own families, but in a way, their fight is also helping us, right? They're fighting for us as well." I heard so I think that sentiment is 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 quite strong. I heard one Kazakh journalist say, uh, "Slava Ukraina, Alga Kazakhstan." <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Slava glory, Ukraine, glory to Ukraine, for sure. And, uh, for onwards, Kazakhstan. Right? Yes, yes. Uh, the uh, just just finally, I'd like to uh, get a little bit of your sense of perhaps where Kazakhstan is going or maybe going uh, right now. It's kind of a new thing. I mean, like, Nusultan, obviously, Nazarbayev was a huge influence and was controlling things for a long time. There's a lot of corruption. Mm-hmm. That's just before this war. <laughs> there was uh, a, quite an uprising against him. And uh, his planned successor, planned puppet, became an actual leader uh, that's, uh, that's currently controlling Kazakhstan and has sent these... Uh, what's it called? Um invincibility yurts uh, to support the Ukrainians right, where they can charge their phones and so on during the during the power outages and has shown some mild support to Ukraine even though they really belong in the defense alliance, the CSTO, with Russia right? uh, I guess a lot depends on the Ukraine war but where, are some, where do you see Kazakhstan going in the next 5 to 10 years? Honestly, I think, like you said, a lot depends on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. And I hope, as a Kazakh person, I hope that the international community continues to support Ukraine, continues to provide the arms and the weapons that are needed for Ukraine to defeat uh, Russia um, on the battlefield. And, you know, if Russia is defeated, I think it will make the prospects brighter for all the places that Russia, you know, formerly colonized. For Kazakhstan, it is a difficult situation, right? So um, Kazakhstan has 7,600 kilometer long border with Russia, right? right? So I think it's the three times the length of the border uh, Russia has with Ukraine, right? Kazakhstan has about 20% Russian population. Kazakhstan has Russia Baikonur, has, it's, it's, the uh, space, space launching space, space launching station, yeah. right? Where so where Russia would consider that to be a strategic asset that's you know it cannot afford to lose to get the uranium so from, Kazakhstan, from Kazakhstan for that yeah I mean Kazakh- Kazakhstan has incredible wealth of natural resources Kazakhstan is the world's largest producer of uranium uh, has oil gas you know I mean it, the country is blessed with an incredible wealth of natural resources and yeah President Tokayev now I think is trying to walk this very fine line right 
between uh, Russia on one hand, the international community on the other hand, and also China, right, uh, as well, right? So um, I think that his Tokayev's statements at the forum in St. Petersburg where he was sitting next to Putin and he said Kazakhstan will not recognize Donetsk. you know, the Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, sort of separatist uh, regions, um, was quite important, right? It's, it was not accidental. Obviously, Kazakhstan, lots of people in Kazakhstan would love to see, you know, the stronger, more, you know, unequivocal statements condemning Russia, but also realistically, as you said, the abuser is still in the house, right? And, there, you know, there are things you can do and there are things you cannot do. But I think Kazakhstan is doing all it can, given the constraints that it has, right? Economic, political, military constraints that it has. Uh, I think because of Ukraine's heroic fight against Russia, the t- it's actually a hopeful time in Kazakhstan, right? We'll see what happens, uh, obviously, hoping for the best. Uh, hard to predict what will happen, but I think yeah. Now in Kazakhstan is a time of opportunity, right? Time of renewal. The fact that the, the first president, uh, President Nazarbayev, has finally uh, gone, right? He's no longer in power, no longer calling the shots. Uh, again, that offers an opportunity for renewal, for political modernization in Kazakhstan. I am optimistic, or I'm cautiously optimistic, I should say, about prospects for Kazakhstan. But yeah, it's not an easy time. Uh, you mentioned the uh, yurts that you know the Kazakh entrepreneurs uh, paid for, and uh, you know Kazakh diaspora in Ukraine uh, helped uh, with as well. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful manifestation of post-colonial solidarity, mm-hmm. right, between Kazakh people and Ukrainian people, right? So two people that suffered from the terrible famines under the Soviet rule to people that share long borders uh, with uh, Russia, two countries, and, you know, share sort of these vulnerabilities. And this, this solidarity is definitely the result of the war, and it's, it's beautiful to see. So I hope it grows. Do you think uh, Tokayev will allow a greater democratization going forward? I think... He already is allowing a little bit more political freedom than Kazakhstan has seen. As a Kazakh person, of course, I would love to see more reforms happening at a faster pace. But again, I've actually, I mean, it's probably uh, a different topic for a different day, but I've argued before that... um, the level of control and level of power that Nazarbayev and his allies have accumulated in Kazakhstan over the years was so great. And their desire to uh, return to the old status quo is so great that Tokayev has to be extremely careful uh, right now, right? So, so in a way, a it, yeah. it, it puts, yeah, it puts brakes on his uh, ability to um to to transform Kazakhstan rapidly because I think there are people with huge amount of resources who would love to uh, have a second shot right, right. Uh, and, and uh, so it's dictating a much lower pace of reform perhaps than some would like to see but I think the overall direction in which Kazakhstan is going is better than it has been in the past 30 years. Uh, in the end, I, th- I thought about a, a little little episode that kind of shows a bit that Russian imperialism, where I think I experienced a bit of it, where I went to visit Bishkek one time as part of an ex- academic exchange. Mm-hmm. And I went to take out some money from a um, from a mini bank close to a, mm-hmm. a hotel that had you know security. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Russian guy in, in combat fatigues and military gear Mm-hmm. comes up to me and says, give me money. No. Oh. And I look around and I see, okay, they're hotel security not too far away. So I say, no. Uh-huh. He takes one look and then he starts walking down the road. You can tell he's a little bit drunk. 
but in combat fatigues, the way he's strutting and walking, he says, <laughs> I own this place. This is Kyrgyzstan, but really it belongs to Russia. Huh. Yeah, that's striking. That's a striking story. Yeah. Hopefully it'll change. Hopefully it'll change. I think, you know, I one thing, maybe my final thought is that um, I think it's natural for us to want to see change faster. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we cannot see it in any given moment doesn't mean that it's not happening. It's just like if I'm looking at a tree outside my window, I cannot see it growing, but it is growing even if I cannot see it mm-hmm. when I look outside my window, right? So I think it's natural to feel impatient, but I think change is happening. And I think that the decolonization uh, in the places formerly controlled by Russia is happening and sort of Ukraine's heroic war struggle against Russia is, is, is accelerating. All right. Well, let's uh, hope for the best for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. All right. All right. All right. Thank you.